Hello and welcome to It's More Than Money. It's More Than Money has a focus to bring you inspiring stories from real people who strive to improve every day. People who aren't willing to settle for the status quo, they've shaken off any limiting beliefs they might have had and they've just gone after what they really want in life. We'll have all kinds of guests, we'll have business owners, entrepreneurs, masters of the mind, industry game changers and money experts who will all, through their own stories, provide invaluable insights into creating a life you never thought possible. Hello there to all my very special listeners and audience of It's More Than Money podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Without exception, we have an awesome guest of the name of James Guilford. Likes to be referred to as Jay, and Jay ran away with the circus many years ago. And that circus is very well known to us all, Cirque du Soleil. Now, Jay designed Cirque's corporate training program called Spark, and he's developed and delivered leadership programs to many organizations in and around their culture and to define better leadership in their management and their teams in general. He's consulted to and trained teams of MGM Resorts International, Microsoft, MasterCard, Google, Uber, Lifetime Fitness, Kmart Australia, and Procter & Gamble, amongst many others. So he certainly knows what he's talking about. And today, one of the things that actually stood out for me was what Jay referred to as Cool Mum Complex which is really cool, no pun intended. So give it a listen. Jay's got some great insights into not only how we can be great leaders, but how can we actually be better versions of ourselves. A lot of good content here. Jay's got a lot of information, a lot of expertise to share. Get the pen and paper down. You want to take notes. Give it a listen. Let's get into it. Well, hi there, Jay Guilford. Welcome to the It's More Than Money podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Kai. How are you? Really good. I'm excited to talk to you. You've got a lot of energy. you just happy chappy and i we've had a brief chat a couple of weeks ago and i was looking forward to talking to you all things leadership and how that might even fit not just in an organization but for people as individuals and in their life and the day-to-day so yeah i'm looking forward to this chat so tell me what's I been know, happening for you <laughs> i know guy we talked for like an hour you're saying a brief yeah. chat for an hour and a half, half i think i shared all of my knowledge i have nothing <laughs> left to give guy nothing i'm left sure you do sorry folks <laughs> All right, that was a great episode. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> Your infinite wisdom is, is 20 years or more with Cirque du Soleil and leadership training and consulting, and we can name all the big names that you've presented at the likes of Google, for example. So fair to say you probably have an idea of what you're talking about here. And through this episode, I want people who are listening to get all those little gold nuggets from your brain into theirs to see what they can put into practice each day. Yeah, I'd say I know one or two. <laughs> Google, Adobe, Microsoft, MasterCard, Cirque du Soleil, a few names, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, what was that one? Microsoft. Who was that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> we all are, Jay. Don't worry. <laughs> We're trying to figure things out. All right, so tell me, leadership, how does it? How do you see, I guess, it fitting in particular? I know there's a lot of content out there about leadership, but what are some distinct differences that you've noticed and I guess what you coach on or train on? Well, in our organization, CoWorks Leadership Strategist, we really focused on the highest level leaders. And the reason why we do that is because we think that leaders have an outsized influence on organizations. So in the literature, what I see is a lot of great lists the lists are always kind of the same, like how to run this meeting better, how to give feedback better. <laughs> And so what we try to do and what I try to do is to focus on those real sticky problems that we have. And I think one, for example, that you and I were talking about is 
what I call cool mom complex. It's yeah. that term. That's a catchy <laughs> phrase. <laughs> it's a catchy term. It's inspired by Amy Poehler's character in Mean Girls. And it's when you see that leader who wants to be liked more than they want to do what's right. Do you remember Amy Poehler's character? And she said, for the listeners, she says, these teenagers walk into her house and she says, there are no rules in this house. You can do anything you want because I'm not a regular mom, (laughs) I'm a cool mom. And we see, you've seen the leaders like that who are like, there's no rules in this organization. I'm not a regular leader, I'm a cool leader. So that's the kind of stuff that we do. I, I, I like to deal with that sticky stuff, the real world stuff that happens every day that no one wants to call out. Yeah. And how now the other side to that is being a hard nosed leader. So what's what's the middle road between trying to be the cool one and letting everything go and not really leading a team and just almost letting them run rampant like a bunch of kids in a daycare center? What versus being a hard nose and being one that isn't just not liked, but also doesn't develop or cultivate a culture within the business where people want to work and are happy to work and be productive. The difference between being a cool mom and being heart nosed, right? Yeah. I'm like a big surprise Kai, <laughs> but it is your job description. <laughs> so what happens in organizations is that we talk about leadership and they want to make it so mysterious about leadership, do this. They don't should do that. It's just core values. It's, you know, your personal history. It's, uh, you know, it, uh, you could have corporate trauma. Those things are true. What does your job description say you have to do? So in terms of leadership, if you, let's say you want to be liked, that's fine. We're all biologically wired to want to be liked. Yeah. You also should give feedback to your employees. That's part of your job description. But if you're trying to be a cool mom, you may not give explicit direct feedback because you want that employee to like you. In your job description, it doesn't say make the employee like you. It also doesn't say make the employee cry. So look at what you're supposed to be doing in your job description. It does get a little sticky because how do you give that feedback appropriately? How do you know when direct is too direct or not direct enough? I always say go to the job description first. A lot of leaders forget that it's a part of their job. Absolutely agree. And, And is there an emotive part that potentially has to be switched off? So it's more about delivering, for example, the instruction, the guidance or the encouragement and leaving the emotions out of it. So it could be something simple like, oh, I just don't want to talk to this person today. But as a leader and your job description is to make sure you've communicated with that employee because they might may not be fulfilling their ob- obligations or duties either. So is there an element of leaving the emotive or the emotions out of it? That the, the, Nail on the head, Kai. Nail okay. on the head. I tell leaders... Your emotions have nothing to do with your job. You can, yes, we're people. Yeah. An employee continues to underperform. It frustrates you. Communicating your frustration is different from communicating how they do the job better. Yeah. So, so when you give that feedback, there's a there's kind of a technology to it. There's an engineering of it. I uh, coach leaders to say you're not going to tell them what they're doing wrong. That's, that's not the only part of the feedback. You want to say, when, then, okay, Johnny, you've done this thing. This is the impact. But when you do it differently in this way, then the results will be this. So it, it's aspirational. So you've messed up. This is the impact. Here are your consequences. And when you do it better in this way, here are the positive things that are going to happen for you 
for the team, for the organization. So you can't forget that part. And if, if you see, if you hear in my voice, Kai, there are no emotions <laughs> in my voice. <laughs> so yeah, leaders, you do have emotions. You can get frustrated. Communicating your emotions is different from communicating the goals for the job. Yeah. And then on that note, if it is communicating your emotions, it's explaining how you feel, not expressing how you feel. Sometimes expressing how you feel is where that anger or frustration might come out or you're joining that employee on a level of being their friend rather than being their leader. Yeah. So I really like that point in that when you're explaining something to an employee or even someone just in your network or even someone in your own family, if you're explaining something, it's about leading them down the path that you want them to go versus just correcting the behavior that they did wrong. And that's a really important point. I know this sounds probably very strange, but it comes to mind with our granddaughter, who's one and a half, if she's into something that she shouldn't be into. And this is something I've learned over the years too. So I parented our older two differently, but our granddaughter, when she's into something she shouldn't be into, I say to her, come on, let's go over here or let's go there and let's move on to something else. Leave yeah. that alone. Let's move over the, over to this thing and let's do this task or let's do this bit of fun or play. So to me, I know it's oversimplified, but it is a very similar concept. It's you, you're talking to people to lead them where you want them to go versus just reprimanding the actual action that didn't go so well. Yeah, you, it's not very, I mean, it is uh, It's simple, but it's not reductionist. Yeah. That's exactly what you want to do with your team members as a leader in an organization or as a leader of a family or as a leader, if you're the coolest person in your friendship, <laughs> whatever you're leading. Never had that, never. <laughs> I have always had that kind I mean, of stuff. I can, I can imagine that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't have it either in high school, but whatever you're leading, let's stick to organizations from now, but this applies everywhere. Yeah. You want to lead the employee towards the goal. Your job is to help them grow. So part of it is, pointing out the behavior and correcting it, but part of it is setting the aspiration for who they can be mm. to say, when you do it this way, and I'm pretty sure you can, because I hired you. So I better be sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can do it. When you do it this way, wow, look at these great results we're going to get. And look, if you can continue to perform in this way that we want you to for 12 months, look at this amount of money you're going to get. And if you do it for a year and a half, look at that office or what maybe people aren't going to offices anymore, but yeah. look at the, if you were going to offices with the corner office or the parking space, yeah. because those things are important too. So incentivize. Incentivize. That's the word. Yeah, yeah. Rather than, again, just reprimanding, it's incentivize them, getting moving forward, getting, keep them moving in the right direction. Exactly. So where is it that a leader who, I think first and foremost, what comes to mind to me is that and all this content around leadership and there's, there's lists of how you become a better leader. You touched briefly on that a bit earlier. But how is it that a leader can truly be honest with themselves and recognize what they aren't leading so well in and make the changes? Is that where another leader comes into it? Okay, yeah. Well, this is what I'm giving all of this free advice. I'll send you. <laughs> you're no, this is good. I love this stuff because... It's so simple, and yet it takes courage to do it. Leaders listening, one thing that you can simply do is to ask your team members for feedback. I actually um, saw a study in Harvard Business Review. It was produced by Vital Stats, and they, it was 1,300 employees. And 80% of the employees said, my boss has a clear flaw. It's impacting the business. We're all talking to everyone about it 
but none of us are telling the boss. Yeah. So leaders, no matter how great you are, if you're at the top of the, uh, the org chart, your employees, you're an employee too, but the, your direct reports feel the power of the or, or, org chart, yeah. even if it's not your power. So they're not gonna give you the feedback. You can say in our next one-on-one, I want you to come with a list of three to five things that I can do better. Yeah. And, and you see how I, I, I phrase that, the choreography of the, the engineering. I'm not saying, is there anything I can do better? Tell me if there is. I'm not saying, I'm giving a quota. In our next one-on-one, I want you to come with the list of three to five things. And yeah. what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen and I'm definitely going to agree with some of them. And then we're going to decide what changes I'm going to make. And then we'll check in periodically. Yeah. And then when you do it, it's then when you do it, you just become a better leader for those team members. And that's another level altogether for me in, in hearing that it's, it, it opens the lines of communication, both up and down. But in yeah. particular, it adds another element to sort of showing that the employees matter. So for me, what I took out of that in particular was that the by saying to an employee, tell me what I can do better, mm-hmm. that's beyond just saying thank you to our employees. Thank you for a great job. Well done. We really appreciate you. This is this is another element to that. And I think, it, again, like I said, it shows them even further that they matter to not only, for example, me as the leader, but also to the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. That's a good idea. And and for people or leaders that struggle, there's two ways you could probably this could probably be answered. One, how do they get beyond that struggle? Or two, effectively just got to suck it up and do it. It's in their job description. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for leaders who struggles, it's interesting because what happens, I have another concept. It's called invalid promo codes. It's people being promoted for a lot of great uh, things have yeah. nothing to do with their ability to lead other people. Yeah, so you yeah. may be very productive. You may have a lot of interesting knowledge. You may have ties in the organization, political ties. That sounds like nepotism, but that can also be useful for the job. All of those things might be good things. They don't have anything to do with your ability to lead others. Mm. So what happens a lot of times is that you take the person who makes the widgets the fastest and you make her the head of the widget factory. That's not, <laughs> not the same thing. It's I like, still don't understand widgets, by the way. But yeah. I know, me either. But it's like, it's, it's like almost like I say it like this. It's like you had a great conversation with someone in the break room and then you say, you should be the keynote speaker. Those are very different skills. <laughs> we do that. You know, another one is like, you know, you drive a car. So let me give you keys to the bus. It's a very different thing. So and we need to leaders find themselves in this situation where they have to learn to do their jobs because they were promoted for other things that have nothing yeah. to do with their leadership ability. But if you struggle, then know that and then <laughs> listen to Kai's podcast and take the advice. <laughs> Specifically listen to Jay. <laughs> so is there a time that you've seen in your training and your experience, at least a couple of decades now, where you've recognized a leader or, or an individual who's in a leadership position who try as they may is not necessarily an effective leader or is it just a case of the need to be shifted into a different type of leadership role? Like how far can we sort of dissect this into what are the broader skills of a leader versus they only belong in a, as a leader in a certain part of the organization? I, yeah, I've seen that many times. I mm. actually agree with Gallup. Gallup says um, 
only 12%, I think 18, 12 or 18%, go check Gallup, I'm not sure. It's <laughs> 20% of people in leadership positions actually have the skills. I think that's fine because I think leadership can be taught. So I am mostly brought in to teach new and emerging leaders or those who've been in their positions who want to refresh their skills. I'm taught, I'm brought in to teach them how to lead better. I think that that's perfectly fine. So if you find yourself out there and you feel like I'm not leading well, okay, most people aren't trained as leaders. Mm. So what if you, yeah, I agree. I think that I would say that 80% of people don't have the skills necessary. I think that 100% of people can learn. You have to, what I, we do is I use data-driven assessments. We use predictive index and I can okay. look at your profile and I can tell you what type of leader or team member you will be. And 95% of the time, it's true. And if you get some data about yourself and you understand that, oh, maybe leading a team of 80 or maybe leading a team of engineers or maybe leading a team of salespeople, very different personalities, mm, yeah. that's not for me. Then you want to do some type of data-driven assessment, some type of self-reflection, get that feedback from your employees, and then actively campaign to change your job. If you're, mm. in, especially if you're in a large organization, it's highly matrixed. There are lots of places to go. Yeah. And how do you define or what are some of the characteristics or attributes of a, of the 12% or 12 to 18%? Everyone check Gallup. <laughs> what are yeah. the attributes? Like, as I say, is, that, is it black and white that leaders in the 12% and then the rest are, for example, employees or contributors, co-contributors? Or is it a case of, yeah, even if you are outside that 12 to 18%, you can still lead, you might not be as effective. So what I'm getting to here is there's somewhat of a scale as to how effective the leader is, as to how well and how big the organization actually gets. I, yeah, I think the leaders have an outsized impact on the organization. So a leader's behavior determines the success of individuals, teams, and yeah. the organization. So just point blank, if you're a leader, you're really important because your behavior determines the success or the failure of individuals, teams, and organizations. And I would, some things that I think are important are emotional intelligence and self-awareness and humility. Emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and humility. Those are overarching kind of attributes. What we find is that the emotional intelligence is, all of those things are important, I would say, because leaders are often thrown into highly charged, high stakes situations. Mm. When you have emotional intelligence and you're self-aware and you have empathy, you're going to communicate in ways that are beneficial to all parties. That's really important. Let's say if you have to lay off an employee or you have to negotiate a high stakes contract with the client or you have to manage up to other senior leaders, when you have that high level of emotional intelligence, you're going to do those things well. And that's something I don't see much of, but it has come to mind for me quite a few times, and I've used it in different scenarios, that one of humility. So self-awareness is an absolute, as they all are, but from a, um, a point of view across the board in, in any role in organization, especially as a leader, Self-awareness, so being, <clears throat> excuse me, being aware of what you're about to say before you say it can make or break the situation or that, that point in time where you communicate with an employee. But tell me a little bit more about humility and how that plays a role in the leadership training that you might do or where, where you see it most effective. I, I, one of the things I'm often brought in to do is I host a workshop on creativity and innovation. Yeah. And really fabulous and amazing. Everyone should call us and come get it. But <laughs> 
commercial, commercial. Um, I, honestly, <laughs> I host that workshop often, um, and it's inspired by my experiences at Cirque du Soleil. What people ask me is, how do I get my team to be more creative? How do I get my team to be more creative? Mm -hmm. If you are humble and you let go of your ego, then you open up the door to ideas. And that's where creativity and innovation comes from. So is that, I was going to say, is that effectively uh, what I've heard, at least in the tidbits, and I've, I've never actually read a book, but just tidbits around Richard Branson as an example. And for what I understand, and I may misquote this and a bit like the Gallup quote that you were saying before. Somewhere along the line, it's about, and actually come to think of it, it may not have been Richard Branson. Anyway, I'll say it. It's one oh, of those. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're batting a thousand right now, are we? <laughs> We're doing terrible. <laughs> Everyone's seen it, I'm sure. Everyone at least knows of it. Could have been Steve Jobs. Uh, have people around you that are smarter than you, effectively. And now I know there's all different kinds of smart. Well, can I just say this, Kai? Can I yeah. just, I'm going to interrupt you, which is a Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, everyone around you is smarter than you. Everyone hey, is. Hey, don't be so nasty, Jay. <laughs> no, everyone has a different set of life experiences and they're bringing it to the table. So you, they just all come with experiences that you don't. Um, yeah. They do things differently. So, for yeah. example, over the years in, in my experience in sort of supervisory or senior roles, whatever it may be, is that looking to people and just stopping, again, the self-awareness and the humility all at once going, hang on a second, I've identified that person in my mind of doing it potentially the wrong way. However, there is likely another way. There's not just one way. So it's about being open to what that other person's way might be. And I know, for example, that staff that we have in our business, I'm very open to say, tell me what to do because I certainly do not know everything. The way I'm doing things is probably old and outdated now. What fresh ideas have you got? Because it's likely a better way. Yes. And that's pretty much what it takes, isn't it? Yeah, I, I can give you a specific example from my time at Cirque du Soleil. I remember we were bringing Uber in to the Ka Theater. And big, high stakes, <laughs> Uber and Ka, Cirque du Soleil, big yeah. deal. And I came in with my Ivy League degrees and I worked <laughs> with Fortune 100 companies. <laughs> I knew enough to know that I did not know anything about the car stage. It weighs, mm. I don't know if you know this, people go look at a picture of that stage if you can. It weighs a couple of tons. It's the size of a 747 and it rotates oh, 360 geez. degrees and it's in a nine story high theater. So I knew enough to know. Jeez. I had some ideas about what we were gonna do, but I didn't know the things that the pyrotechnicians knew. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the things that the lighting or sound people knew. I didn't know anything about the theater. So at Cirque, I was humble at every uh, production meeting because I just didn't know what could happen. And that humility allowed them to say for this particular case, hey, we can make a cutout of a car and we can roll it out to the sound of the 2001 Space Odyssey and we can project the logo on the stage. And they just came up with all this stuff yeah. I couldn't have come up with. Yeah. So that yeah. humility in your organization is important because you're going to get a lot of more ideas. You're going to get a lot. You're going to make more money and people yeah. will be happier. Yeah. Well, I think it's an important differentiator there too between as a leader and, and the way it can be traditionally viewed is that you are sort of the, the backstop of everything. You know probably more than anyone in the business. You know the business better than anyone. All those sort of usual, I guess, views of being a leader, but in actual fact, a good leader will recognize it one, 
you need other people to do things that can do it better than you, but also recognizing that those know more about certain parts of the business than you do. So there's a big difference too between abdicating and delegating. So when we can delegate to those people who do their role well, is that one of the attributes of being a great leader? Yes, delegating is, I see, uh, yeah, that's one of the attributes of being a great leader is delegating. New managers especially, I've seen a new manager struggle because a lot of times they're still in individual contributor mode and they need to switch over to leader of the team mode. So you, I, I often tell leaders, you were an ingredient, now you're the chef and everyone else is bringing in the ingredient. So yeah. you, you're putting it all together. You're the choreographer, you're no longer the dancer. So mm. delegating, when you delegate to your teams, you want to delegate both tasks when necessary, but most importantly, authority. Mm. So, That's a tough one for some leaders. Control and authority. <laughs> control and authority. The way to do that is to say, here is where we are. Here's our goal for this project or for the next three months or for the next six months. Within the parameters of our organization and the rules, give me some ideas of how we can get there. Yeah. Wow. Guess what comes up on the whiteboard? Lots of ideas that you would not have thought of. And for me, when you recognize these particular attributes of of great leadership and the way that you've taught them and coached them over your many, many years of experience, it's actually easier than first viewed. So as a leader, it can be viewed of, oh my God, I've got all this responsibility. I have to check everything. I have to oversee that person. I have to correct that person. I've literally got to almost herd cats on a daily basis. But the reality is if you just foster and those open lines of communication, you foster that encouragement, having people through conversations move towards where you want them versus just reprimanding a particular mistake, then it actually starts to flow and, and it just sort of happens for you and you become more or less the guide as opposed to the dictator and the controller. Yes, you do. I mean, you want to sit back at your desk or at your home desk or in your office and have everything just working for itself. The best leader is in some ways a lazy leader. You want to make it so that you're not needed. Yeah. Steve Jobs was not writing code. Oprah Winfrey was not running her own cameras or putting on her own makeup. <laughs> the best leaders let most people do all the other stuff. And those things are really important. I mean, designing the, the curved parts of the iPhone is really important but I'm pretty sure Steve Jobs wasn't doing that. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure Oprah wasn't editing those pages for a magazine. So think about it. Even there's some, when you delegate as a leader, sometimes leaders would say, oh, I'm just handing over these things that I don't want to do. Yeah. But guess what? Someone else really wants to do that. Yeah, yeah. And guess what? Someone loves the hell out of that job. <laughs> Someone loves it. Someone loves it. Yeah. There's, a, there's actually a, uh, a comedian by the name of Bill Burr. Do you know of him at all? I know this guy, yeah. <laughs> I find him one of personally one of the best comedians I've ever seen. And one of his segments is on Steve Jobs. And to me, this segment highlights one of the main attributes of a great leader. Now, the way Bill delivers it, it can be a little bit harsh, I suppose. But in yeah. some regard, it was incredibly funny. And to me, it was on point. And basically what he has said, and I don't try and replicate a comedian because I just can't do it. He um, was saying, <laughs> pardon? I'm sure you can. Go for it. <clears throat> so he basically, he said, Steve, <laughs> Steve Jobs did jack shit. He walked into the room. 
he had all these tech heads, all these nerds there and said, I want all my music, which is a CD at the time, in that, build it, and walked off, which is kind of yeah. <laughs> overly simplified, done probably in poor taste, but incredibly funny, but on point. And that's mm-hmm. effectively what it is. He had the great people around him, and he said, design that, build this. This is how it's got to work. And they went and did it because, as you touched on, he wasn't sitting there at midnight trying to work out how he's going to put a curved screen on a phone or a curved exactly. edge. <laughs> exactly. Take off the buttons. He said, take off the buttons. And they did. And now we all love it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Now, is it on that point, and to me, it's almost a fun approach. How important it is to have a bit of fun and relax in your role as a leader rather than being so fixated and, and burdened and tired by that sense of control that you've got to have over everything all the time. How much does that play a role? And what have you taught around that? I, I was fun is an interesting word. I would say differently that you need to be authentic to your own style, okay. whatever that is. So I, I did some work with a leader in a media firm. And one thing that he talked about was he is very regimented. He's very by the book. And if I look at his profile, he's a scholar. So that's part of it, regimented by the book, wants okay. to follow the rules. So if that's you, you should be that. Um, other people are persuaders or promoters. That means they're super talkative. They want to engage with the people. They're going to be cracking a lot of jokes. Kai, I would imagine that you may be a persuader or promoter. I'll do your profile <laughs> later. Whatever your style is, be authentic to that and understand how your style mixes with your team's style. Doesn't mean you need to change it. It just means you need to understand it. So fun is one part of that. Maybe fun to you might be pouring over those spreadsheets as a CFO and fun to someone else might be something different. So understanding your style and being authentic to that. I would also say you're right, Kai, you do need to relax. There's nothing serious going on here. You're, most of us are not performing brain surgery as leaders. So there's not- no, that's pressure to me. <laughs> yeah, there's not usually a, an immediate life on the line. So no. I would say relax into the role, be easy, allow other people, give other people space to grow. I think yeah. that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? That open space and that air so that people can grow and breathe into their roles. Absolutely. They can step into that flow of their authentic selves. And if they're in a role that they love doing, then it's going to just organically be a good performing employee. And that's yes. a, a tricky part too, is identifying where the employees kind of fit best. And that's, I think, where it comes to those open lines of communication. So rather than trying to steer someone down a road, it's communicate with them about where they feel they work best. And we're recognizing in those particular roles where they might be making mistakes. Why is that? Is there some external pressure outside of work? It might be the home life or whatever it might be, but are they actually suited to that role? Maybe it's just something they've done for a number of years and they haven't realized it's not really what they love. It's just what they're used to and what they know. And they might yeah. need a big change. Now, as a leader, is it uh, on, I guess, the leader to identify that? Obviously, you'll have sort of other leaders which might be senior managers or shift managers or supervisors who can identify how an employee might be going. But as a leader, instilling that sort of culture and bringing in the options to change How important is that? Have you seen in the flexibility and growth of organization? I think it's primary giving your team members flexibility and the ability to change roles or to exit the organization is really important. I'll tell you a personal story. I I was in a position at a global company and I had a critical team member who came to me and said, "Mm, I want to leave. And it it was directly in support of me 
And we had clients like Fortune 100 clients in the pipeline. <laughs> because of you, they wanted grown, to leave. Of, uh, but I had grown in my emotional intelligence enough to say, tell me more. And then after, you know, after I kind of got myself together later, the next day I said, well, how can I help? And we worked on some things with this person, resume, LinkedIn stuff. And um, eventually they decided to stay. I think that my openness to helping them exit out of the organization and go to where they want it to be was, um, it showed faith and trust in me as a leader. So I would say you want those lines of communication to be open so that your team members can say, I wanna do more of this. I don't think I'm doing well at this. I see this other thing in the organization I wanna do more or I'm ready to transition in my life. You do have to be open. Again, that's to humility and the open mm. communication. So tell me, I'm really interested to see or hear about from you what it was like in Cirque du Soleil because there are so many different nationalities, mm. personalities, different roles, but importantly, every single role is so very dependent on the role of the other. So there's a big trust element that plays a role, plays an important role in Cirque du Soleil, I imagine, because we're then we're there hanging from the ceiling three or four of them hanging from the one that's latched to something up there and they're swinging around at 360 degrees. That to me is a very complex organization to, to unite but and lead. I'm going to make it even more complex for you. You can imagine that we get a lot of our acrobats from the world of gymnastics. Mm. And if you think about it, gymnasts perform on the balance beam alone, the floor alone, the pommel horse alone, so they're not necessarily collaborators in that sense. So you mm. have to take those competitive gymnasts and transform them into collaborative performers. What happens on some stages is that people who were competing against each other six months ago are now on the stage and they have to collaborate. They must collaborate because mm. the gymnast is now flipping three people high and landing on the shoulders of his competitor or yeah. her their competitor. So yeah, it's a really complicated endeavor because you're taking a lot of maybe individualists, uh, talk about gymnasts, individual gymnasts who are on a team, but they're always competing individually. Mm. You want them to collaborate with some people they were competing against before. Mm. You want them to emote and perform. Gymnasts are executors. They don't emote and perform in brightly colored costumes. <laughs> and then you want them to go 40 feet up. Gymnasts yeah. are usually 12 or 13 at the highest. They're never 40 feet in the air. Mm. All of that, the transferable for organizations, because leaders are like, what do those clowns have to do with me? The transferable <laughs> for you organizations place too <laughs> is that there is onboarding involved Cirque calls it integration integrating into the show there's onboarding involved uh -huh. where you take someone who has a different set of skills that are transferable and you help them transfer that into the organization for Cirque du Soleil the skill for gymnasts is um, they're high level acrobats they're perfect 10 acrobats mm. and they can they have the um they have the muscle memory to do the things we need them to do on stage. Mm. The challenge is they're not performers. I mean, a lot of gymnasts are afraid to dance in front of 1,800 people because they never <laughs> do that. So in your organization, I mean, circuit's different and it's unique, but in your organization, you have, you have people who have great skills, but there are also skill gaps. You need to identify them and fill them, whatever they are. Yeah, and help them be just a bit better version of themselves so they can be a better employee, contribute more broadly. Yes, yeah. That would have been incredibly challenging. I'm just thinking through, for me, a gymnast is incredibly structured. And like you have said, they are 
performing by themselves. So every move they make, even within the millimeter of what they've got to, where they've got to put their feet, their hands or otherwise, it's all up to them, their own concentration and control over their own body. So how difficult or was it a lengthy process for some over others to get them to integrate? And is there a time where you sort of go, okay, this isn't going to work? Well, I fortunately was not training the gymnast. I was <laughs> corporate organizations in to talk to the acrobat. So yeah, okay. I, I worked with, I worked across nine or 10, at least 10 Cirque du Soleil shows, all shows in Vegas mm. and several touring shows. So I do understand that world pretty well. The integration process for a show can take anywhere from three months to six months or even a year. And the reason why it takes that long is because in addition to learning how to perform, learning how to put on your makeup, you have to learn the tracks for the show. That means where you're going to walk in and out and you're going to do this role tonight, that role. And then you have to learn the technicalities of the show. Don't stand over there because on that mark, that's where the floor is going to open up. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a 20 foot drop or don't stand there or fight because five people are going to be flying over your head and flipping over you. Mm. So because you have to understand the technicality, because you have to understand um, what it means to perform nightly in a theater. Um, it's a great, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. And even not just a gymnast, imagine you have B-boy troops who perform all around the world and they're accustomed to gigging. Mm. Now you're formal theater in Las Vegas, uh, you know, yeah. and, uh, at Mandalay Bay, a five-star hotel. It's a very different culture. So there's a lot of different culture clashes that mm. fortunately solves. And what an unbelievable event, what unbelievable events they put on as well. What a coordination, like you said, of cultures and different people to present no, what they okay. do. They're okay. <laughs> no, no, they're actually spectacular. They're, they go they're all right. Spectacular. They're all right. If, if you like that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly impressive, that's for sure. And it, you can only begin to imagine as someone who's watched a show as to what's involved to put it all together. And to me, there's an insane amount of structure there, albeit there's people going everywhere there probably is even more importance on structure when it comes to something like that. So yeah. Can you tell me what's, uh, say, three common commonalities between the likes of a Microsoft and Google and uh, Cirque du Soleil and three differences are needed by leaders in those respective organizations, if at all? Oh, well, that's, that's I can tell you the three, the, I can tell you the common, let me make it broader, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. The, what's baked into the DNA of Cirque that other organizations might think is a nice to have. One is cross-cultural communication. It must happen at Cirque because mm, at yeah, the yeah. height, Cirque had 4,500 employees. There were, they were from 50 different countries and 25 Jeez. nationalities. So you had to communicate cross-culturally mm. on each show and then across the shows, because they're all different cultures, they're very different. And then from Las Vegas to Montreal and then around the world. Yeah. The other thing is um, you, you, had to, you have to solve for skill gaps at Cirque because if you don't solve for skill gaps in an organization, it shows up in the work product, right? That's yeah. the same for Microsoft. For other organizations, it might show up in a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint. Yeah it shows up on the stage so in front of <laughs> people so you have to solve for that skill gap yeah and the third thing that's interesting that i found interesting that we taught at Cirque is you have to maintain the competitor spirit without the competition a lot of people without they, the competition within so you want the grit yeah. you want the go get itness you want the you want the drive but you don't want the competition 
Because I can't, I, now my job is to shine a light on you. You're the focal point for this act. Yeah. So I do need to be able to do that. But at the same time, if we're in learning a new trick, I still need the grit to perform at my highest level every night. Yeah. So those are transferables for organizations. It's, it's a great metaphor. Um, mm. I think because Cirque du Soleil, I don't think I know, because Cirque du Soleil is both a corporation and a contemporary circus, uh, Cirque had to take different approaches to those problems. Mm. Still the same problems. There are some things that are just non-negotiable. Like yeah. the DE&I stuff that people are talking about. I'm like, well, that, that had to happen at Cirque. I can tell you, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, collaboration has got to happen. It, it <laughs> or, you know, healthy risk-taking, you know. Is, is that such a thing in Cirque du Soleil? Yeah, it's got to happen. <laughs> so, the, so I think that even the, I, when I go into organizations to talk about collaboration, creativity, and do the creativity workshops, um, of, I reflect on my experience at Cirque. And I bring in a lot of those other case studies from Google, um, you know, the 20% rule that they had for their uh, their engineers. You know about this, right? Please explain. So Google <laughs> had this rule. So they had they allowed their engineers to use 20% of their time to do whatever they wanted. Oh, right. Those okay. engineers created Gmail and AdSense, billion-dollar hits. Yeah. So there are many other places we can – Netflix is a great example. Yeah. Is Lots that a the twenty percent rule? Is that a incentivized, or is that the incentive in itself? They've got twenty percent of their own time to create. Yeah, create, and I think they're allowed to use all of the infrastructure of Google. So you can imagine they have they have, might have a few pieces of equipment there. That, <laughs> Maybe so in that infrastructure, they tools of the trade. Yeah. They had a few <laughs> and what is there any sort of standout differences between a leader within the likes of a Google versus a leader in? A Cirque du Soleil and in, do the attributes vary that much between a long list of other organizations or is there's always commonalities and that's there's not usually too much differences I would say I think about Netflix a lot yeah. or, or even Cirque du Soleil or Uber I all of those organizations had clear core values even if they weren't articulated they knew who they were at the very beginning and they yeah. knew who they wanted to be I love Uber as an example because Uber had super clear core values. One of their core values was super pumped. One of their core values was be an owner, not a rent renter. One of their core values said step oh. on those. If you think about how Uber evolved, they went into every major city in the US first. They broke a bunch of laws to the tunes of hundreds <laughs> of dollars. And because they did that, we're now able to order phone. I mean, we're now able to order cars and food from our phone. Early on, they said, step on toes. They said, push the envelope, be an owner of this uh, company, be super pumped so that you can see the core values and the way that they moved and the clear result. You may not agree with Uber and the way that they move, but you can't disagree with the fact that they did make our lives more convenient and they created a stellar product. I'm over here looking at my phone right now as if you can see it. <laughs> Are you ordering something? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm ordering <laughs> as we speak right now, folks. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. And as much as the disruption they cause along the way, maybe for the worst, according to some, it's disruption for the better because they haven't backed down and they've gone, no, we're going ahead with this. We want this to happen. And it did work out for the better. And, and that's not dismissing like here in Australia in particular, the taxi licenses <laughs> that taxi owners had to buy. They paid quite a big sum of money for that. And there was a, a lot of uh, upheaval and a big uproar from taxi owners when Uber came in with no licensing requirements. 
So they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, these taxi owners, for licenses, and then the government's allowed Uber to come in with no cost. So it was it did cause a lot of disruption. However, there was an element there that it's it's been one part in the world evolving. And if we didn't have disruptors as a planet and as a human race, we wouldn't evolve and we wouldn't have the industrial revolution. We wouldn't have cars and we wouldn't have now electric cars and all these sorts of things. So creativity and collaboration is an extremely important ingredient, not just in the organization, but just in the human race. It makes a huge difference. And I, I would say you have to also, you have to be comfortable with that type of conflict. If you want, uh, that would be another thing if I had to point out uh, a similarity between a Google or an Uber, a Netflix or Cirque du Soleil, being comfortable with the discomfort of disrupting. Yeah. Uh, Netflix pointed out that Hollywood had a monopoly over movies. Uber pointed out that taxi companies had a monopoly over private car transportation. They pointed out these things now that you think, yeah, why should it just be a taxi? Or why should only Hollywood studios create movies? When you look back on it, there, there is a, a big uproar with Netflix because you know they're winning a lot of awards mm. and they're not Hollywood. And people at first were like, should streaming movies get awards? Yeah, they should. They're movies. <laughs> Still so, movies. <laughs> but you have to be comfortable with creating quote unquote powerful enemies. You can yeah. imagine probably, yeah. you know, Ryan Kalanick at Uber wasn't just sitting back over getting sued for $8 million again. <laughs> I don't think it was, you know, that simple. I don't think- It must have been part of the business plan. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we got to hit this profit to make, a, like hit this sort of revenue to make this sort of profit. But we've also in the cost base, we've got to put suing and litigation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would say for leaders and who, or in organizations that are not the size of Google's 130,000 employees mm. or who are not as global as Cirque du Soleil or not as um, widespread as Netflix, those organizations got there because at the core, they became comfortable with the conflict that it takes to grow. And they had a, a very clear vision of what they wanted to accomplish? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was I'm sure they've had doubts, but it was just unwavering. Oh, I can tell you, Netflix, I have a friend. She has all the degrees from all the shiny places in the world. <laughs> she has worked as a C-level executive with Fortune 100 companies. She was in an interview with Netflix, and she had brilliant ideas. And the guy said, let me stop you. Those are great ideas. You will never be hired here because the one thing that we're trying to do is increase subscribership. And she was like, oh, he was like, so don't waste your time. He said it in a nice way. He didn't yeah, say yeah. it this way. But he said, don't waste your time calling anyone else or applying because what you're trying to do is really great. It doesn't fit with our goal. Mm -hmm. And she, yeah. she appreciated it because they were very clear. Subscribership, subscribership, subscribership. Yeah, that okay. Uber going around the world and, you know, cars on the streets around the world. They were very clear. Very so as a leader, what's one of the attributes that you've seen in these types of leaders where the belief is unwavering? That might be the attribute in itself, but where do you see, do you think that they find or continue to find or be energized by this goal, despite, like you said, setbacks or people that are putting pressure back on them, people that are suing and litigating, they keep just persevering. Is it just a quite simply an unwavering belief and focus on this is what we're going to accomplish no matter what? Or is there something else in there? I They have those leaders who accomplish these seemingly uh, mammoth, gigantic goals have a clear sense of purpose. Mm. They're married to the purpose. 
those leaders see something that they want to change or something that they want to create and they move towards it. It's almost like a siren song. For me, mm. I'm clearly not a Steve Jobs. And at the same time, I did create Cirque du Soleil's corporate training program. Mm. You may not know this, but pedestrians are not allowed on the stages of Cirque du Soleil, or they weren't before I got there. Yeah. And employees, there are, there are hundreds of employees that don't work on the shows. And unless you're a performer on the show, they don't allow you on the stage. Mm. Because I saw that clear metaphor, I politicked. I went to the SVP. I went to, you know, I wrote uh, emails to C-level executives. I spoke with every president of every individual show there. They're called company manager managers. Mm. And I said, we need to do this. And this is why. So the, 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 I, it's just, it was a small endeavor compared to Google. Still, so what was the driver there for you? What kept you pushing and pushing and pushing to make sure what got implemented was what you wanted and for the reasons that you wanted it? I just saw the clear metaphor of Cirque yeah. du Soleil. I came to Cirque as an outsider. I'd been there for over six years. I always looked at it from the lens of learning and development. Mm. And when I saw, I remember seeing Zilka Ortloff on the stage of Michael Jackson 1 when they had b-boys from Korea and b-boys from uh, Puerto Rico and contortionists from, you know, Mongolian and all of these, they didn't have contortionists on the show, but they had different people from all walks of life. Mm. And she, the artistic director, seamless, seamlessly choreographed those people to work together. It wasn't seamless because we, you know, it wasn't seamless. Yeah, yeah. Challenging. But I saw her do it and I thought other organizations have to learn from this. Yeah. So it was, when I saw it, it was like a siren song and I was called towards it. And I just, even against my best judgment, I couldn't let it go. <laughs> I can imagine that sense of purpose yeah. in, in those other leaders, like an Oprah Winfrey or a Steve um, Jobs or a Bill Gates. Yeah. I can imagine they have that drive. It's just a strong inner drive or strong inner desire, isn't it? And, and probably... Yeah. Uh, I guess to, to finish on that note, to be a good leader, a, a great leader, no matter the organization you're in, one of the important ingredients would be to really love that role, love the business in your, you're in and love the creation and collaboration. That's a, obviously, I would believe, a huge driver. You can't be half-hearted in it. Yeah. And even if you look at leaders outside of business like uh, Gandhi or Malala. Mm, yeah, yeah. Malala said, this has to change. Women need, need their rights. So. Yeah. Girls need to go to school in my country. So that sense of purpose mm. is one defining factor. If you're yeah. a leader listening now, ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. It's more than just the money. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's more than just the money. I, I tell people all the time, uh, money. you can make money anywhere. Go sell <laughs> apples on the street. You know, it's more than just the money. I promise everyone that was not staged. I did not get Jay to say that. <laughs> Where's my $20? <laughs> it's in the mail. <laughs> but you're 100% correct. And what we've seen over the years, whether it be guests on podcasts like yourself or whether it be through the work that we've done with people, and it's always about more than the money. The money is often a byproduct of what people do. And if they are fortunate enough to find their purpose and really get driven by that sense of purpose and the desire to create whatever it is, and have that impact, whatever that may be, then that's where the money generally tends to flow. And we've touched on it a few times today from you know, different leaders and like the Cirque du Soleil is a great example. 
if there wasn't a true desire and a sense of purpose in those who created Cirque du Soleil, it would not be where it is today by any means. And what's interesting about it is that Cirque was really inspired by Nadia Comaneci's Perfect Ten. Oh. When the Olympics were in Montreal. They Few people know this, but Cirque, the early founders shared a training facility with Olympians during that time, and they saw that high level of human performance. Mm. And they, Cirque, the founders, Guy Le Liberté, Gilles Saint-Croix, and Guy Caron, they wanted to take their performance, their street performance, to that level. Yeah. At the time, there was some laws against certain types of street performance. So Cirque wanted that respect and that renown, mm. and that's what drove them. And seeing that level of perfection, they said, we're going to do that. So there was a sense of purpose, even before they were the Circus of the Sun. They began with three other names. They met in a, in a, they met in a, a, a commune named the Green Balcony. And they were, I don't know what they were doing in the commune. I'm not talking about that. But they were inspired with a sense of purpose. So when you yeah. see the theaters and the performance, it's a byproduct of the founders knowing who they wanted to be and where they wanted to go. And do you think it's important as a leader that the, the hiring of people, those people have a sense of purpose, whatever their role might be. It might be the very best data analysts. They just love analyzing data. Should a leader, for example, only hire those that are so in love with what they do versus someone who just does it as a job and a pay? I'll answer with the story. Yes. Yeah. The first answer is yes. Yeah. We just did, um, we just had a series of trainings and I can't say where, but with, it was with an yeah. engineering firm. And the namesake of the firm was, and it was all the senior leaders and the guy whose name is on the building was yeah. there. Um, he asked, how do I hire team members that have passion? This is going to sound so uh, complicated, Kai. Mm. I said, or I didn't say my partner, Jenny Clark said. I think it's a joke coming. <laughs> no, it's not a joke. <laughs> Jenny Clark said, why don't you ask them what they're passionate about? It's so obvious we unhide the ball. Are you in some sort of... <laughs> I am. I, I should get a job at Saturday Night Live. If we hide the ball from ourselves as leader all the t- leaders all the time, yeah. you want passionate employees, ask about that in the interview. What are you passionate about? What thing would you get up to do every day if you didn't uh, need Come the here. Come yeah, here. If you didn't need money? <laughs> what part of this job really most excites you? Why? Yeah. Yeah. What part of other jobs have excited you yeah, and why? Yeah. In that conversation, you they might start and interviewing with one role and then you see that, oh, wow, they're passionate about this and this is what we need as we grow. Netflix, they, they say mostly they're hiring, they're interviewing for culture fit. Yeah. Netflix has, uh, I think they have a tremendously clear culture. I don't know if I would call it great or horrible. It's radical, it's tremendously mm-hmm. clear. Yeah. Netflix hires for culture fit, and then they find a role for you. Now, yeah. if you're, they're not going to code if you don't know how to code, but you know they're looking for the fit in the culture. All oh, right, so they're hiring the people first, and they go, "Oh, we'll just try and find a role for you." Hire somebody. great people. Hire <laughs> passionate people. Yeah, because that is somewhat of a unicorn to a lot of uh, business owners or leaders. They often don't believe that that is actually possible because they're often so used to being challenged by these employees that don't necessarily come in and fulfill the role 100% or they're not communicating very well. They're taking sick days. It's just, 
not a very cohesive environment. But so they're of this belief that that type of environment is actually like all those people are somewhat of a unicorn, but it's real, isn't it? Like it's true. You just have to take the time to hire the right people. So they saw it sat. I'm pretty sure this is a Richard Branson one. Oh, Branson's <laughs> gonna I, we're in trouble with Branson. We're in trouble with Gallup. Let's just get in trouble with Warren Morris. Person. Yeah, we were, well, I was just throw another one out there. <laughs> so when Richard's listening Madonna to this, said, no, Madonna said, <laughs> no, get Branson, mate. Come on, you can do it. I believe he said, hire slow, fire fast. Was that his? <laughs> I, that, I mean it's been in the it's been in pop culture a lot so it's been assigned it's been a, uh, assigned to a bunch of folks but we'll say it's him sorry self. to any leader out there who actually did quote that who actually has read these books that we're talking about <laughs> i've read a lot of books i just haven't read his so yeah. higher slow fire fast but it's it's true isn't it like yeah. i know one organization in particular not very big but doing very well they've come up out of the ground quite fast and they are uh, their hiring process so i heard about it literally just last week or the week before i've gone holy moly now me personally i would not want to do that at all as someone who might be going for the job or even as the person conducting it might be fun a few times to do it but to actually go through that three-month process and be the one running it i couldn't do it so that then comes back to say for example me as a leader hiring someone who wants to run that three-month recruitment process. Yeah. It was really impressive Yeah, for a, for I, a small business. And I would add to that, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's one way to approach it, to hire slow and fire fast. One thing that I see that could be added to, uh, to the hiring process is a use of data to understand yeah. who you're hiring. And um, if you have whatever type of data you use, whether it's a competency-based assessment, where it's, whether it's a behavioral assessment, whether it's a ambassador profile or mm. any of those things, you use any of them. Yeah. But have a set of data that helps you know more immediately who you want and who you don't want. Mm. A lot of organizations, when you, what's helpful is to have your business goal and then have the data that you need to identify the employees who will help you meet those goals. Yeah. And then exclude the candidates who don't help you meet the business goal. And if you have that data, that part may be slow, but the yeah. candidate and the pipeline can move quickly. Remember, there is a war on talent and there is a great resume. Yeah, yeah. So you may not have three months. I, I'm applying to not me, not Jay, yeah. but a candidate could be applying to various jobs around the globe now. Mm. So if you're slow on the hire, they might abandon the process. A great yeah. using that data and understanding your hiring goals before you start the process is very helpful. Absolutely. And don't have cool mum complex trying to avoid that. Cool <laughs> they don't fit even, you know, and using that data helps you against nepotism. If Mrs. CEO comes in and says, here's my cousin. She was, uh, you know, a math teacher. Now she wants to be head of widgets. You can use data to say, great, Mrs. CEO. The data says she's not a fit. You know? uh, yeah. Yep. It's not going to work. Gonna work. Uh, All right, Jay. So, We'll wrap it up please stay on the air but please tell us share where can people get hold of you your content and anything that is reflective of your genius so you can go to uh my website it's uh it's my website for my speaking and fireside chat so i can bring this to you and your team virtually yep. or in person it's uh Uh, Or you can email contact at 
coworkslead.com. That's contact at C-O-W-O-R-K-S-L-E-A-D-S-L-E-A-D.com. Contact at coworkslead.com. Do I know my own website? Yes, I do. I know my own <laughs> It's okay. Go You're clean probably it up. not looking it up very often. <laughs> so Gallup, Branson, Jay and his website. <laughs> we got the third one. <laughs> Might as well put Steve in the mix in case we've misquoted anything he's oh, yeah, so. Oprah. Yeah, Oprah. We got them all. We got them all. <laughs> Apologies to everyone. That's our ending disclaimer. <laughs> oh, yeah. There we go. Look, Jay, thank you so much for your time. Love chatting with you. It was good fun and also just some uh, good knowledge, some really good nuggets of gold there for people to take out, whether it be business owners or leaders of any kind. Just start adapting those. And, of course, your websites. Get on them. Check out Jay's content. I believe there's always more material coming from you. So follow you sort of on LinkedIn. and LinkedIn is where yeah, I live. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. All right, so everyone get on board. Jay, uh, thanks again for your time. Appreciate you being on. Thanks, Kai. Thank you for listening to It's More Than Money. This podcast has been recorded and produced at Brisbane Podcasting Centre. Before we go, don't forget to click on the subscribe button for this podcast and wherever you listen to it, give it a rating as well. If you'd like to find out more, you can always go to our website, parentfg.com, or you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Please leave a suggestion for a future topic if you wish. Either way, we'd love to hear from you, so let us know your thoughts. We'll have another episode soon. Thanks for listening to It's More Than Money. Take care. We'll catch you next time.